So one of the things I like doing here is reading through my old scrapbooks. And tonight, I found a letter written to me on September 8th, 1994. It was from a Nashville woman when I wrote for the Tennessean. Dear editor, we want our children to read the daily paper, but do you have to teach them about oral sex? Shame, shame on you. I know you are laughing, but do you know what it is like to have a young child ask, mommy, what are they doing? God help us, Ann Simmons. And I remember reading that and thinking, what the hell is she talking about? But then more letters arrived and more calls and more letters. And finally, I figured it out. A few weeks earlier, I'd done a story on laughter and the joys of laughter. And the illustrator drew two people sharing laughs through sort of a tube that, if you look closely, is pretty much a dildo. Yeah. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Mark Fainaruwada, the ESPN.com writer who co-wrote the 2006 number one New York Times bestseller, Game of Shadows, which chronicles Barry Bonds' PhD abuse and totally and completely wiped my Barry Bonds biography off the face of the fucking earth. God damn it. Today, I seek revenge. This is episode number 238. Let's sing some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Well, Mark, I just want to say, I've been waiting to have this conversation 15 long years. I've been here. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm, I'm always here and available. I was thinking I was going to get my revenge this morning, and I went to, um, I went to Amazon, and I decided... I'm going to look up and see where Game of Shadows is on Amazon right now compared to where Love Me, Hate Me, Barry Bonds and the Making of an Antiheroes. And I thought, I'm going to get the win, damn it. I'm going to get the win. I went to your book first and I thought, all right, well, your book is 1,144,345. And I thought, easy. And then I yeah. went to mine and I'm 300,000 behind you. Oh, <laughs> God damn it. Well, I, I'm sure uh, I'm sure that, that people are just going to be racing for it now after listening to this. They, your fans are going to want to catch up for you. So fans? Did you say I have fans? Um, they're both available probably for a buck on eBay. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. They'll pay you to buy it, to yeah. take it off their hands. Wait, so uh, I want to go back to a time period. It is March 14th, 2006. And okay. I opened the Wall Street Journal and there's a story <laughs> Publishers bullish on Barry Bonds market. Okay. Yes. Two books about baseball slugger Barry Bonds, which were never intended to compete with each other, are suddenly in a literary slugfest of their own, thrown into a high stakes scramble to sell books and magazines. The first, Game of Shadows, Barry Bonds, Balco, and the storied scandal that rocked professional sports by San Francisco Chronicle reporters Mark Fenerwata and Lance Williams burst onto the scene last week with an excerpt as the cover story of Sports Illustrated the venerable weekly magazine with 3.3 million paid subscribers. Now it's arch rival ESPN. The magazine is rushing out its own bonds book cover story this Wednesday. It's excerpted from Jeff Perlman's upcoming biography. Love me, hate me, Barry bonds and the making of an anti-hero. And I knew I was dead when they misspelled my name. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I don't know. My name gets butchered all the time. So I don't know that I would have viewed that as the death knell, but I understand. Not in this article. So wait, I'm actually being serious. I want you to be totally blown with me. Yes. 
all this is going on. Yeah. And my book, I think, came out, my Barry Bonds book came out about two to three weeks after your Barry Bonds book. Right. And there's a quote in that story from my publisher at the time, is a guy named David Hershey, who was like, I think there's room for both Bonds books. It's going to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. One is the main course, one is dessert. That was his quote. <laughs> and I was thinking, I am so fucked. I just spent two years on this book and I am totally fucked. To you guys, did my book even exist? You're asking me to go back many years. I have a hard enough time going back to yesterday, but I, I, I have a memory definitely that Lance and I knew you were working on it and knew that it was coming. I don't think we had any sense of the timing issues or the questions around it. And I think we knew, as I think I've seen you say, you know, the books were very different. You know, we were, we were really in a singular place and, and you, were, you were telling the entire story of Barry. And I, I, so I, I don't think we were like, oh shit, this is an issue. Or I, I just don't remember, we were so new to like, you know, we had no expectations really around the book, to be honest with you. Like w- neither of us had written one before. We both were just hopeful that, you know, we were excited that anybody wanted to publish it. We were hopeful that it would be readable. We were hopeful it would be followed. And then, you know, the SI excerpt changed everything for us. Like that's when the book exploded, you know, SI takes the, the excerpt, they run it on the, you know, he's on the cover, the truth. It's, you know, it's like dream coverage. That's how it exploded because then they, they pushed up, they pushed up the pub date because of that actually. And so I don't know how that affected the, the sort of competition between the two, but I, I, it's not that we weren't thinking about your book. I just don't, I would think we were so focused on our own situation and worrying like nobody would want to buy it that we didn't really have any idea what to expect. Wait, this is what I love. All right, so there are three of us in total. There's Mark, there's Lance, there's Jeff. One of us had been a writer at Sports Illustrated for years. I know. I know. I know. Well, clearly somebody made a decision there. I mean, I will say this, like, the, the one of the things, and I've seen you talk about this before, is, you know, publicity is everything with these things. And we had amazing, the, the Gotham got behind the book like crazy, um, from a publicity standpoint. And so, you know, getting the book to SI and getting SI to go for an excerpt was enormous, you know, and then it, then it just took off. And then we were, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember just being blown away by, I mean, we'd been blown away when covering the story by how many people sort of would call and want to talk about it. But I remember when the book came out being blown away by who the, the publicity guys were getting, you know, I mean, I remember being at, at my kid's school to pick him up and getting a call from our publicist. And I was such a dick too. I was like, I, I still feel badly about this, this day. Cause like I was, I was walking to pick up my kid, a guy, like a father saw me who I didn't really know. And we were getting publicity around the book and he was saying something nice, like congratulations. And I was saying, Oh, thanks so much. And then my phone rang and like an idiot, I answered it. And uh, I was like, Hey, sorry, hang on. And it was our publicist telling me that Letterman wanted to have us on. And I was like, holy shit. And I was like, I don't know if we want to do Letterman. That seems too, too like jokey for our serious book, which is such an idiot thing to say. But like, I just think that that speaks to the publicity piece is huge, you know, and them getting SI changed it all. And so I, I, I you know, I, I'm assuming you've screamed at your former colleagues many times. I've never hated a guest more than I hate you right now. So <laughs> as all this, as, as you were debating whether to go on Letterman. I didn't do anything. As you were debating whether to go on Letterman or not to promote your book, I, I think I was definitely making some 
some very important appearances on AM radio in Utah. So I just want to... Well, I've come to learn it doesn't always it doesn't always go that way. <laughs> so, you know, we we everything everything sort of was working right for us. And I'm sorry that the timing wasn't great for you. I was like, I'm so dead. I'm just dead. I'm dead. And it actually the funny thing is I just want to say it is crushing. First of all, I want to say, and this is important to say, you guys did an amazing book. I was never, ever, ever even remotely oh, screw these guys or blah, blah, blah. It was never like that because you guys, your book, you deserved it. Your book was amazing. Your research was amazing. It was all warranted. Thank you. But you're sitting there and you just spent whatever, two years working on a book and you pour your heart into it and the thing just gets nothing. And you're like, man, this- No, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I totally like, I mean, I, I have this memory. Tell me if this is wrong, but you know how you have memories now and you're not sure whether they really happen. Yes. So I, I have this memory of- of a moment where Lance and I were were somewhere together doing some publicity and and you called you you called like it made a generous phone call to us and I think it was me my phone to say look I I you know this is really shitty I'm not really enjoying this but congratulations I don't know if that happened or not but like do you remember that at all or have I invented that 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 uh, favorable memory of you that doesn't really exist I don't remember that. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. I actually, I'll just take credit for it because it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I'm sure it did. But I just want to say it's like, um, there's a there's a fight that I was always fascinated with as a kid when Marvis Fraser fought Mike Tyson and the fight lasted about 38 seconds. Yeah. And afterwards, there's the hug afterwards where Mike Tyson says, hey, good going. And the guy, poor Marvis Fraser, who just got knocked down 17 times. is like, yeah, man, it was good. That was basically, I was Marvis Fraser right there. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, I will say this, like, of course, we, you know, having covered Bonds and, and Balco for so long, I devoured your book. And, you know, and it's amazing. I mean, it's it's a I mean, I think the thing that I mean, it is I, I think the thing that that I remember thinking about it was it's so relentless. Right. Like, like, it's just it's it's just I remember thinking, like, as challenging as Balco was in his own ways, like, fuck, trying to deal with an endless amount of stories about Barry that are largely so depressing and negative would be exhausting, I think. And I remember thinking, sort of admiring how you would have pulled that off. Cause I, I think the book's very readable and great, but it also just must've been, you know, just exhausting cause it's a relentless read. So basically number one, thank you. You're, you are definitely one of the then 12 people to have read my book, which I appreciate. When, <laughs> I appreciate very much. What you said is hundred percent correct. Like writing about bonds, is like writing about sewage. Like it's not a joyful experience. And it's, he's so unlikable. And you guys, obviously your book was related to Balco and his involvement with performance enhancing drugs. So did you not feel that end of it when you were reporting it? Like, did it matter to you guys that this human being is sort of an asshole? It mattered only in the sense that like we ran into it a lot, you know, like it was inevitable to run into, you know, we're dealing with Bonds' ex-girlfriend, Kim Bell, for example, you know, and her story is just, it's horrible, you know, and, and you know, and, and I think when we first heard her story, for example, Lance ended up dealing with her a lot. We didn't think we, we, we would end up actually being able to print any of it because we thought it was just going to be he said, she said, but she ended up with all of this, like, you know, supplementary material to back up, back up her story. I think for us, the important thing was both as it related to the book, certainly for the newspaper reporting, but as it related to the book too, was we didn't want to use anything that seemed to pull away from, from the point of the story. So like, I didn't want to feel like 
I didn't want anybody to feel like we didn't want anybody to feel like we were throwing in a bunch of stuff about what an asshole berry is. And people would think that's what really was our motivation or what it was about. Like for us, it, unless it was relevant to the steroid story, the issue of his personality and character didn't necessarily matter. And I think was important to try to keep out of it. That's actually fascinating. He is a challenging guy to write about yeah. because he's such a dick that it makes it easier for people to say, you're just writing about him because he's a dick. And in San Francisco, you know, the, the extension of that around steroids was you're just writing about him because he's the best player. You're just writing about him because you're in the Bay area and you want to make a name for yourself. And, you know, all this other bullshit. I mean, Lance used to joke that the farther you got away from home played at the ballpark, the more favorable the reactions were to the reporting. And I think that was largely true. Like, you know, people in the Bay area did not want to acknowledge at least giants fans did not want to acknowledge the, that, that Vance had any real culpability here. There were always excuses, right? So, you know, everybody else is using, or you, you said he got the stuff, but you don't really know that he used the stuff. I mean, that people made up all sorts of things um, to try to convince themselves it was okay. Why do you think people do that? You and I, we're both adults, right? Um, a lot of these people were adults who are, who are making these, in fact, almost all these people are adults who are making these arguments. I'm a fan of some team. My star in that team is clearly using performance enhancing drugs. Why am I even trying to defend him? Why aren't I just like, yep. I mean, I, you know, I, this is the sort of mystery of fandom, right? I mean, like people are, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's the term is, is, a, is apt, right? Fanatical. And so there's a lot of people who are really just obsessed with the notion of protecting what they're seeing. I mean, you know, there's an element of like ruining Christmas and ruining Easter and, and no, no Easter bunny and all that for people who follow this. And, you know, I, I think people don't want to confront, you know, I always thought it was really interesting that you would go, you could go to a ballpark. And if you asked a, a dad who was there with his son to be, you know, sort of stereotypical, would you let your kid take steroids? Would you want your kid to take steroids? He would say, of course, never. I don't want to do that. And then Bonds would hit a 600 foot home run and those guys would be, you know, out of the seats. And, and I think that, that there was this, need to separate those two things for people to be able to go to the ballpark and enjoy themselves. I've made this comparison now about 40 times. I've never seen anyone like Bonds until Trump. And this is what I mean. Bonds would walk through norms. Like that was his thing. He would walk through norms. Uh, Barry, we're the PR department for the Giants. Now I'm going to have my own publicist. Uh, Barry, you get a locker with two chairs. Now I'm going to have four. Barry, we have a masseuse. I'm going to have my own masseuse. He just walked through everything. And even with like with Trump, you would never, if you went to his supporters and said, do you want your kids to mock the heavy girl next to her? No, of course not. But whenever this guy does, like there's something about someone's ability to walk through the norms of society that is a weird elixir to normal standards. Well, I think it's funny. You were, I heard you talking about this, with, and I'm, I can't remember who, who it was, but you were talking about, to some degree, this notion of like, there's a difference in how we feel we need to be around stars or other athletes or people like, like what, why is there a value to them that, that allows them to be any more human than the rest of us or inhuman than the rest of us. Right. And I, I, I think about this all the time because you see, I mean, especially at the network I work at, I mean, like, you know, there's so much godding up of the athletes and there's so much protecting in some ways of the athletes by the entire industry that, you wonder what what's happening. Like, why is there a why is there a need to sort of do that as if they can't be human in their own ways, as if they're not 
good people and shitty people in the same way that there are in every other element of society. We all go to the bathroom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a confession, by the way. I do go to that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a lame question because I know you've been asked this before, but I don't have it in front of me. You're writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. Lance Williams is writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. How does Balco become a thing in your life? I actually, at the time that Balco broke, I, I was on loan. I had been in sports, you know, my entire career and I had done, been doing um, sort of takeouts and enterprise stories and, and some investigative for, for sports. And I, I had wanted to branch out and see if I could do it outside of sports. And so I was actually on loan. The Chronicle at the time had an investigative unit. I mean, this shows you how much has changed in journalism and how much everything's shrinking. But the Chronicle at the time had a fairly large investigative unit. And I was on loan and it was the middle, it was in the middle of the gubernatorial recall election when uh, Schwarzenegger becomes the governor. And I was doing campaign finance reform stories in the middle of that as sort of my, you know, trial and doing some work for, for investigative. And Balco broke. The raid happened in September of 03. And both my old sports editor and um, Glenn Schwartz and my new editor on investigative, Steve Cook, were like, you know, I think you should take a look at this and see if there's anything there. Cause, cause the raid was just like, no one really knew what it was. There was some reporting locally around it, but it was unclear what it was. And so I just got asked to take a look into it. And once I started to do that, you know, you saw that it, there was this host of top athletes, most notably bonds who were associated with this lab that nobody had really heard of. And the more I started to do some reporting around it, the more I learned, what was going on. And I actually happened to be sitting next to Lance. My cubicle was right next to Lance's in the investigative unit. Lance had some free time at that point. And our boss, as the story started to emerge, our boss asked Lance to do what he thought was a one-off story with me that was a deep dive into Victor Conti and his finances and, and all of that. And Lance is, he's just an unbelievable reporter on so many levels, but he's really good particularly at court records and document hunting. And so we worked together on that story. Lance thought it was a one-off. And I was like, yeah, I think this is going to be a while. You know, the next thing you know, we were on Balco forever. This all starts. Are you thrilled by this story? Or are you kind of like, I kind of want to just get back to campaign finance reform? Well, I, I was pretty happy. I mean, campaign finance was, was relatively boring. I mean, I had a couple of stories that I thought were sort of interesting and I'd, I'd done some stuff. But I, I once you started to look at this thing, it was pretty fascinating, right? I mean, you had the best athletes in the world in a range of sports. You had this guy who the more you learned about him was like a carnival barker, Victor Conti. And, and, you know, I learned quickly, there was a grand jury investigation. It was looking into steroids and in sports. You know, I, I think there was a lot of doubt, including in the newsroom about whether you could end up with a story that showed bonds had been using this stuff. But I, I think it was really, you know, I, I was excited about it. There was, I, it was a slog because there was a lot of cold calling at first. You know, I don't, I don't love cold calling. Um, you know, I don't know anybody who does necessarily, but, but I, I think I was, I was happy to be moving a little bit away from, you know, campaign finance and into a, at least something that felt a little more familiar to me. What don't you like about cold calling? <laughs> what is there to like about cold calling? I mean, I, I just like, it's a sales pitch, right? Like as much as anything. And I, I think our job is that in a lot of ways at times. And that's, that's frustrating. I get nervous, you know, I'm insecure. I get nervous when I pick up the phone. I'm like, does anybody really want to fucking talk to me? And now I'm going to ask you about something that's probably uncomfortable. And, you know, is the person going to slam the phone down? Are they going to, you know, what, what are they going to do? And, 
you know, am I going to get anywhere? Like how many people am I going to have to cold call before I get somebody who gives me any bit of information? And so I just think it's, it's, you know, you like calling people who know you, right? It's easier. I think this is an important point and I have discussed it before, but all right. So the two of us, we probably have a combined, whatever, 60, 70 years in journalism. Yeah. Um, we're both around the same age. The stuff, the cold calling, the door knocking, people think you get hardened to it. I've never gotten hardened to it. I hate rejection. Yes. Yeah. Same way. It's funny because I, I think, again, we don't know each other. And I, I don't even know if we've ever actually physically met before. But you present as somebody, I think, largely through your Twitter feed, but also just, you know, in the few exchanges we've had as somebody who, you know, is fairly not only confident, but doesn't really give a shit about what other people think. So you you present differently than that. But I but I'm absolutely the same way. Like I, I worry about what other people think about me. I get nervous. I, I don't feel like I'm, I guess I'm better at cold calling than I was 20 years ago. But you know, when I come in in the morning and I have a list of calls, I know I've got to make, you know, I'm dreading it half the time. Wait, it's so funny. You said that I had Ivan Mazel on my podcast last week. I heard it. Yeah. And he's great. He's great. And I said to him, when do you reach the point where you're no longer starstruck and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I saw Brad Paisley. And I was like, oh, my God, Brad Paisley. And then I had Wallace Matthews on, who's just the baddest motherfucker in sports media as far as just walking up to people. And he told me, like, he still gets nervous. And I was like, what? Like, I had the same reaction you probably had. I was like, wait, you get nervous? And like, Ivan, you get starstruck? It's like you just have to push your way through it. No one's that badass. You just find a way to push your way through it. No, I think that's true. I, I was listening to the podcast with, with Eli Saslow too. That guy's just unbelievable. Yeah. And you were talking about this notion of like humanity, right? And, and I think there's like an element of that. Like if you're, I guess if you're one of these like badass reporters who, who doesn't really sort of uh, have fears about anything or just as takes on this persona, maybe you can get to that place. But I feel sort of, you know, I'm, I, I am human. I have thoughts. I have feelings. I, I have fears like anybody else does. And so to me, it's all just, it's not intimidating. It's just, you know, it's, as you say, like you don't want to be rejected. You don't like to, nobody likes rejection. And, you know, and you want to feel like you're going to be able to do your job well, right? Like there's a the pressure to perform and to, and to come through and get something. And so I think there's a, there's a element of like, Oh, there's almost like a sense that like, well, you have to be inhuman to do this. I don't think that's true at all. I, I think you have to set aside some stuff for sure. But I think, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think one of the reasons people are willing at times to talk to me is because I'm just transparent and honest with them. And it's like, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be truthful with you and upfront and blah, blah, blah. And, and not the sort of stereotypical, you know, badass reporter you know, that people have an image of, not of me, but of others that like, you're just going to say, fuck it. And you better talk to me or not. I would take a million door knocks over 10 cold calls. Oh, no way. Seriously? A million. Oh, jeez. Do you hate door knocks? Oh, God. No. Jesus. It's so funny. Like, you know, when I moved to ESPN, you know, like in TV, they'll do these like, you know, show up at the camera at times. Right. And I haven't done a lot of those, but those are horrible. I, I had one. We, we did one on a story of the, the, and there's video of it. There's some that there's a minimal amount that appeared in the story in which it looks OK. But then if you watch the raw footage, it's so humiliating. I, I feel like such a dick. So we're we're going after this guy who's a 
He's a serial sexual abuser. He's been abusing boys and young men for like 40 years. And so we go to confront the guy and we decide the only way we're going to be able to confront him is with a camera. And he's at this point, he's like 60 or 70 and he's had hip problems. So he's got a walker and we get him like basically at a track. I walk up and the cameraman's right behind me. And I'm like, hi, I'm Mark Fanery Water from ESPN. And the guy just gets up and bolts. And so, so there's camera, there's footage of me like chasing this guy in a walker across a parking lot. And, you know, we finish that we, we go after the guy. It's like four minutes of, of us doing this and me firing questions at him or whatever, him largely not answering. And we finish and the camera guys are like, oh, oh, that was amazing. That was fantastic. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking horrible. It was so humiliating. I feel awful. This is going to look ridiculous. You know, that's an extension of saying like, to me, that knock on the door when you don't, where you don't have any idea what you're going to get in front of you, that, that is far more terrifying to me than, than picking up the phone and cold calling somebody. I love, hate the feeling of you knock on the door or you ring the doorbell and those eight seconds of not knowing what's going to happen. It's like being on a plane with really awful turbulence where <laughs> you think you're going to be okay. You should you're be okay. You, you don't know for sure. You're a sick man. That, that shit scares me. I hate turbulence. So that kind of stuff scares the hell out of me. When did you know with Balco, this is not just a story like this. This is going to be enormous, enormous. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think there were two pieces to that. I, I think I knew early on when we started to find out there was a grand jury and that bonds had been subpoenaed and that steroids were the topic you know, there was obviously a sense then that you had this sort of enormous story looming. But I don't think until we started to pop a few stories that we realized the breadth in which or the or the enormity of the story, just in terms of how much interest there'd be. I mean, you know, I'd never done a story, you know, that in which people were calling me endlessly to interview me. I, you know, I'd, I'd never done anything like that where you know, they wanted us to comment on the reporting we were doing. Um, you know, I, I probably had had one-offs here or there, but but it was just sort of, um, it became a, a regular blown up thing. And, um, you know, and then to the point that Lance and I became associated with the story that you would be out and mildly recognized, which is something like I never imagined ever and was bizarre, so I, I think over the course of the first few weeks, as we started to pop stories, we had a sense of how big it was going to be. Um, but, but I don't know that we ever really were prepared, one, for how long it would last, and two, that it would explode the way that it did. I just want you to know that after my Bonds book came out, nobody recognized me and nobody wanted to talk to me. At all. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. The therapy's been good for me though, and I've been. It's helped. It's been helpful. And I have a. Um, like you're handling it well. I sleep with a. I sleep with a with a lovable every night, and I. <laughs> I mean, it's only been it's only been what like 20 years, but you you got a good handle on it. Don't worry about it. I've calmed down. I'm taking less Xanax. I'm good. Wait, September 21st, 2006. You guys refuse to comply with the subpoena, and you're sentenced to 18 months in prison. Did you think you were going to prison? Yes. I don't know if in that moment I thought we were going to prison. You know, I knew that, that when that happened, the only nice thing the judge did that day was stay the, um, stay the sentence and let us appeal it and stay out on appeal. 
But I think as we started to go through the appeal process, and we spent a lot of time actually in D.C. lobbying for a national shield law, for a federal shield law to protect reporters. It wasn't necessarily going to help us, but it, but it was sort of a long-term thing. And I think as we went through that exercise and, and the, more, the longer things played out, I think we were we were definitely preparing for that. And I, you know, I, I think we were I think we thought we were probably a couple months out or a month or so out from going, you know, when the feds decided they had the leaker and and, and went after him and pulled the subpoenas on us. But but I think, you know, we had we had started to talk about it and prepare our kids. I mean, we I was in different situations than Lance because his kids were much older than mine at the time, and mine were like eight and six. So much different conversation to have and more difficult. But um, but it was, I mean, it felt real for sure. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's home from college for the winter break. Bradley says I should no longer participate in this endeavor. Who's Bradley? He's the TA in my philosophy class. He wears tweed and went to Harvard. He finds commercialism to be beneath me. How did this even come up? We discussed market control over wheatgrass shots at a charming little cafe by the villa. I mean, has Bradley ever been to RoyalRetros.com? Does he know that you can go there and get all sorts of throwback jerseys and hats right now at low prices, that they're high quality and super comfortable? Oh, father. Bradley's in stod right now, saving primates. He has no time for such trivial matters. Did you get a lot of hate mail? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like I, like I said, that, that, you know, Giants fans, yes. Other fans, oh, this is great. Thank you for doing this. This is important, blah, blah, blah. Nothing terribly creative, really, either. A lot of it, like, you know, especially after the jail sentencing, a lot of bad jail jokes, a lot of male sex jokes, a lot of, you know, rape jokes, just all that shit. You know, but I, I mean, of course, like, you know, this the irony of of the web and of email and of, there, you know, Twitter was not a thing, but was people don't sign their names. So people just feel free to say whatever the hell they want. Lance was really much better than I was. He's a much calmer person than I am. So he would often humorously engage these writers. And then they would either sort of back down because they realized he was human or they wouldn't know what to say because he was so sort of sarcastic or dry. And, uh, and I just usually either ignored it or would get really pissed. I had this thing for a while where I would get hate letters and I would write back, you know, dear Clint, Thank you so much for your kind words. I believe the Lord Jesus sees us both as human beings who want to better ourselves. And I appreciate you for inspiring me and making me see the errors of my ways. Sincerely, Jeff Perlman. And then you'd get some email back saying, hey, man, that's really cool of you. I appreciate you reaching out. And you're like, I'm actually making fun of you, but that's cool. We're good. It's really revealing how people, like when they suddenly realize you're human, they totally change their tune. Right. Oh, yeah. Not all of them, but like a lot of them are, you know, you'll get a piece of hate mail and you'll respond and say, thanks for, you know, I don't agree with you, but thanks or whatever. Here's what I was trying to do or whatever. And and suddenly it's like, oh, I've been reading you all along. You know, thank you for this work you're doing. We don't agree, but blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, suddenly it's a normal discourse. I was reading through your bio and I found an article from you in, um, well, I found an article about you, first of all, 1999 examiner sports writer wins AP contest. You wrote a story in 1997, so I'm really dating you. Okay. The Lives of Eric Abrams on the oh. Troubles of a Former Stanford Football Player, which is a fascinating... Wait, I just want to read the lead to this, which, again, a long time ago now, but on the evening of April 14th, just hours after he is accused of flashing a fake police badge, coaxing a 13-year-old boy into his car, 
and ordering the teenager to undress under the pretext of a strip search, Eric Abrams walked into a classroom at the University of San Francisco and returned to his life as a graduate student in sports management. There, Abrams slipped into his more familiar world where he lived as a graduate of Stanford, all-time leading scorer in school football history, 1991 National High School Player of the Year, 4.0 student, former teenage philanthropist, and model son of an attorney and an endocrinologist. Less than a month later, the 24-year-old sits in a jail cell in San Jose, facing two felony charges from separate incidents involving young boys. It's a really freaking amazing story and deeply reported and richly reported. I was just kind of fascinated how this thing came to you, if you recall. I mean, he had been arrested, I think is what happened. Like, and no one, it was a very small story. Like there was word of his arrest. And, um, you know, I had this great job at the time in which, which I sort of have now, which was like, go dig into shit and take a bunch of time and really look at something. And, you know, and, and it was obviously fascinating, the dichotomy, as the lead suggests, between Eric Abrams, a Stanford kicker who was like, you know, one went to Stanford, two and succeeded in all these ways. And then this guy who was, you know, being accused of molestation and now in jail. And so, you know, my boss freed me up to spend, you know, months or whatever it ended up being digging into what had happened. And and um, and that's the result was, you know, we ended up tracking down a ton of people who he'd been in contact with, who he'd been, who, you know, who he'd been wooing, basically, and soliciting photos from and connecting with and then getting getting a hold of police records and and investigators who'd been looking into him. Um, so I think it started just off of um, simply his arrest and the news of his arrest and like, okay, what happened? How do we get to this point? If you're in your shoes and you're reporting on people like Eric Abrams or, or Barry Bonds, do you need to have any sense of empathy for them? Like Eric Abrams is this guy who's molesting kids, but there is still something sad about the down. Like, can you be hardened about these people or do you need to have some compassion for them? No, I, I mean, I think it's helpful to at least at least try to, you know, try to have a humanity about understanding where people are coming from. It's not about justifying or about apologizing or anything like that. I, I think, you know, you and Sassel were talking about this. I think there's a need, like there's a value as a reporter to being human and to sort of approaching stories that way. And so, you know, for me, I don't think I was like, okay, I got to write the story of Eric Abrams, the bad, sick guy. It's, how did Eric Abrams become this? What did happen to him and what contributed to it? If any of that is there, that's all going to be relevant. You know, I, I think, I think that's, you know, we were talking about the absence of nuance. You know, I think the more depth you can bring to, to a person in a story, you know, the, the, the more understanding there is of why you got to where you are. I, I was mentioning earlier, this story we did on this guy who, you know, had dozens of, of, of men accusing him of having abused them when they were boys you know, we, we found at least 50 guys over over four decades. And, you know, while, you know, they all described him in these horrible terms in which they had affect, he'd affected them, you know, you also grew to have an understanding of, you know, his background, not why he did what he did, but sort of how, uh, how his life had unraveled in the way that it did. And, and I, you know, I think there were times then, we were reporting on that myself and Mike Kessler, the other reporter on the story where we were like, geez, I, you know, not that we are condoning or feel okay about um, or feel like accepting or anything of what he did, but that there was a level of, of like sadness about this guy's life 
um, and what it had become. And I, I, I think you could look at Eric Abrams through the same prism. There's a, you know, regardless of how horrific the crimes are, there's, there's a sadness about getting to this place. Right. Yeah. Well, I always thought like bonds, I mean, bring it back to bonds a little, like the base reaction to Barry bonds from covering him just as a baseball writer was God, this guy's such a dick. Right. And when you become a better reporter, you actually want to know how he became a dick. Right. And what actually, what were the steps that led him to be this person? Well, you also realize that like, again, people are not, you know, there's the way people are to us. Right. There's the way people are to all sorts of other people. And I always say this, when people ask about Barry, my answer is always the same. Like, it didn't matter how Barry was to sports writers or journalists. Like that's irrelevant to me almost. I mean, should he be a better human being to everybody? Yes. But I think what was more telling about Barry and, and your books sort of reflects this or doesn't sort of it does is, you know, you're not just talking about journalists. You're talking about teammates, managers. You know, everybody had stories about what a dick Barry could be. And so that to me is far more telling than how Barry was to, to, to journalists and, and, you know, people who covered him on a regular basis. What I hate, my least favorite sentence that I hear anyone say about anyone they're covering is he's always been good to me. To me, it's the worst measure. Yeah is how someone treats you. And the best measure is how does he treat the guy who he doesn't have to be nice to at all? I mean, and the reality is, of course, like we don't really know anybody, right? We don't know these people. Like we, 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 have, a, we have a level of exposure to them. And I think that's why, you know, again, what we were doing was very different. Like you were really drilling into who is Barry and how did he become who he was? And for us, I think it was important to avoid some of that personality stuff to make sure we were just focused on this question of, of, of his use of the drugs, the impact of his use of the drugs, and not get sidetracked by this question of, you know, who is he really? Have you had face-to-face direct encounters with Barry Bonds? Not uh, during Balco. I had some prior to that, when either covering ball, you know, in group settings, or I'd done a story once about a guy who was a podiatrist and had used his connections with uh, sports teams, including the Giants, to beef up his practice. And he'd had a ton of lawsuits that had come out of that. And and Bonds was the guy he alleged that he had a relationship with. And so I'd gone to try and talk to Bonds and he, you know, he mostly blew me off. It wasn't a horrible experience, but he blew me off. Um, But during Balco, all of our interactions with, all of my interactions were with Barry's lawyer. You know, I mean, it was a weird setup. Like, you know, you want to go on one hand, you want to be going to the ballpark and being present and, you know, and being accountable for the reporting you're doing. And, 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 but on the other hand, like, you know, Lance and I are in a position where if we're showing up at the ballpark and needing to confront Barry, we've got a story and we don't anybody else to know we've got a story. So unfortunately, uh, Henry Shulman, who was our beat writer at the time, the Giants beat writer at the time, he 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 was the guy who had to deal with this shit all of the time. And, you know, Henry, you know, when I see him, we still joke about it this day. I mean, he, that guy's an unbelievable reporter. He did, you know, ridiculously courageous work, just having to deal with that on a daily basis. I actually vividly remember that. First of all, that guy is one of the best. And I actually remember this. And I remember him like having to ask a lot of tough questions. He would, he would always, he jokes about how when, when our, my phone, you know, number would come up on his phone, he'd be like, ah, fuck. You know, because he knew he would have to do some shit. And I, you know, we always hated it. I hated it for him, but it was just sort of what it was. When you break a story this huge and it becomes a book and your names become nationally known, is there a negative to that in that people now see you coming? 
I think there's a mixed bag. Like I, I think it's worked both ways. Like I, I think by virtue of doing, you know, this reporting and then some of the reporting that my brother and I have done on the NFL and, and other stories, there's a, you know, there's some people who recognize that, you know, we're going to be taking these stories seriously. We're not going to be like, you know, it's not going to be a, a, you know, a, a thinly produced piece of reporting. Um, we're not getting into this in any sort of, um, you know, um, not serious way. And so I think there's some people who see that and you can use that to convince them that there's a value to talking to you. And then I think there's other people who are like, I know where this is going and, or this is, this, you know, may not look good for me in the end. And so I'm going to, I'm going to avoid them, you know, and I, I think that happens for, you know, all of the people in, you know, the, like the unit I work on at ESPN, which is largely doing investigative, you know, we, we, I think we all run into these kinds of issues. Right. Um, You alluded to your brother, your brother used to be a long ago, Red Sox beat writer, Hartford current. It's covered a ton of stuff. Is there a moment in your life or is there a, is there something in the water in the house when you guys are growing up that leads you down this path? I mean, first of all, I was baby brother falls and big brother's footsteps. So I'm, I'm three years younger than Steve. And, you know, I saw him working at, you know, the student paper in high school and, you know, we were both into a lot of the same things and I was definitely a tag along. And, um, you know, the, the, the newspaper was a regular thing in our lives growing up, Um, you know, at the breakfast table, everybody was reading the paper and we were always reading the sports section and, you know, we grew up in, in LA until I was like 10 reading the times and then moved up here to the Bay area when I was like 10 or 11. And then we're reading the sporting green. And, um, you know, so we were exposed to all these great writers and all this interesting stuff. And then we have our grandfathers actually are both, um, both have writing in their back are writers. My maternal grandfather was a songwriter, some relatively decent renown. And my other grandfather wrote for a communist newspaper in Detroit, Wait, what songs would we know by grandpa? Well, my grandfather's most famous song is Waiting for the Robert E. Lee. And then he wrote a couple other songs that are quite well known. Although as you get into the younger demographic, fewer people recognize it. But um, Waiting for the Robert E. Lee is his, his most well known. Down Yonder is another song. When I tell people who are of a certain age, they're all they're like, holy shit. I, you know, I, I remember growing up and knowing that song. So do you still get a buzz from this all? Like, do you still get the same charge? from reporting writing that you got when you were doing Balco or even before that? Yeah, I, I do largely. I mean, I, I think it, um, you know, when we're working on a, a cool story, you know, I'm really into the reporting, you know, the writing is a little different. I, I'm not as, you know, Steve and I joke a lot about, you know, cause we work together a lot and um, you know, on the book writing process, he loves it way more than I do. And I really love the reporting and the writing I'm, you know, a little different on, but like, you know, we've been, we had been working on some stuff around the NBA in China and the, the conflicts arising around the NBA's relationships there. And I, I, I just find the whole topic so fascinating and, and the fact that it, it's, it's, it's ground that really hasn't been trod. So I, I think when you're working on a story that is going to be revealing to people and maybe makes a difference in some fashion, you know, it's like corny, but I really believe in journalism. Like I really, you know, I believe in what we do. I love it. I think it's important and it's critical. And, you know, and, and now more than ever, obviously, like it's it's I find it torturous to watch what's happening now. You know, it's really scary and and worrisome and depressing. I actually get really fed up when people talk about, quote unquote, the media. They put me, you, Hannity, the loudmouth yelling on TV and whoever's hosting a talk show. Oh, in the same boat. It drives me insane. 
No, I get it. I mean, it's funny. Like I, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I'm obviously appreciative of the job I have and, and ESPN being willing to commit to us doing this, but I, you know, I work in a network where, I mean, what we do is like, you know, we're like a little knit in the corner of the the store, right? Like we're, you know, people always joke about, uh, people used to always joke about like the, the sports department being the toy department at newspapers. And in some ways, like there's times where I felt like our little investigative unit at ESPN is the toy department, right? Because, because the network is so built around games and trades and promoting that kind of news that, um, you know, you're, you're in this, you're in this sort of little other world. That's not the same as everybody else's, but you're right. You get sort of, you know, there's a lumping that happens now, maybe more than ever. You've listened to this podcast, you know, I'm required to ask what's the greatest conflict you've ever had with a subject in your career. I, I, I've been ruminating over this and I've not come up with a very good answer at all. I, the, the, the story that came to mind as I listened to other people was that, you know, look, I mean, my brother has the best story ever, right? Like, you know, he, he gets into a brawl, you know, Jim Rice tears his shirt off in a locker room. So, um, you know, that story has been well documented in like, you know, what's that, what's that sports writer's book, Pond Scum and... Uh, oh, and Vultures. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Steve's got dramatically better stories than I do, having covered the Red Sox and, and dealing with people like Rice and all that. But I, I had a really weird experience where I was covering Stanford football in the late 90s and Tyrone Willingham was the head coach. And Willingham was a notoriously controlling sort of guy, not the most media savvy or friendly guy necessarily. He, he didn't really like relish the media part of the job, which I always found ironic that he ended up going to Notre Dame because he didn't, he just wanted to coach, I think. So anyway, they kept trotting out like after games, really shitty players like that you didn't want to be talking to after games. Guys who were critical to the game, we were not getting access to. And I remember at a press conference on a Monday or Tuesday after a game, we were all the beat guys were all sitting in this room waiting for, for Willingham to step in. And we're talking to Gary Migdahl, who was a sports, sports information director at the time, really good guy, and complaining about the access we're getting. We were about to get a player that day, and it was somebody who nobody wanted. It's like, why are we getting this guy? Why, why are you doing this to us? Why can't we get who we want to talk to who is critical in the game? And it was all Willingham was controlling all of it about who he would give. And Willingham came in as this conversation was going on. And we were finishing the conversation and I was being fairly vocal to Migdal and saying, look, this is ridiculous. Like, why is this happening? And so we stopped talking and Willingham just put a death stare on me. And he just started doing this, like, look, this glare at me silently as if like I was one of his players or I should know to like, I instinctively just start staring back at him. <laughs> and so we just, we just sat there and stared at each other for, I mean, a very uncomfortable period of time. I don't know how long it actually was, but it was a noticeable, uncomfortable period of time, which I was like, I'm not fucking backing down from this. This is stupid. And, you know, I'm not going to be treated like a player or whatever. And so then I made the mistake, I guess. I don't know. I just started to laugh. I'm like, how long are we going to do this? Or something like that. And then he was like, you know, like he won. Like, he was like, okay, you said you spoke now and let's move on. And it was just this bizarre sort of scene that I, 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 that's all I could come up with when I could think of confrontations as you asked for them. Wait, I have two questions about that real quick. Number one, so he brings in like whatever, the left tackle who nobody wants to talk to you. And it's a college setting. Do you guys feel like you have to ask a kid an obligatory question because you feel bad? Of for course. Yeah. 
of course, like, you know, you feel bad. It's not the kid's fault. He's in the room now. And you're like, you know, this is who you've been given. You don't, it's always like, you know, when you see those big settings where there's, where there's events and they've got players around a table and there's one guy who's by himself. Right. And no one's going up to, and you almost feel like you just feel badly for the guy you want to go get him. But there's always the possibility, though, not in that case, that as you've pointed out, the least likely guy may give you some of the best stuff. Sure. Right. And that's why to go to that guy. And number two, my other takeaway is yeah. of all the douchebags we have to deal with in this profession, the arrogant division one college football coach is my least favorite species by far. I'm with you. It's funny. I have zero like I have not gravitated at all to college stories. Like I just, I've done some obviously, but I find the whole, I mean, to me, this issue of like, you know, the players themselves and what they're doing to survive financially. Like I I have no qualms about any of that. To me, the only stories that are worth, that are worthwhile are these stories that address the exorbitant amount of power that the, the institutions have, including the coaches. And so that that part is so distasteful. I completely agree with you. I was uh, I saw last week the the Auburn University football coach would not answer the question whether he's been vaccinated. And then I always Google <laughs> salary of Auburn football coach. The guy makes five point two million dollars a year. It's my right to ask if you've been vaccinated, and it's also the player's right to know if the freaking coach has been vaccinated. Of course, and I, you know, like I, I see like all of the upheaval over the Washington State guy. That you know, that guy's the like the 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 highest paid state employee in Washington. Like you're telling me that there's not a right to know that or understand or to call or have him be held accountable on this. Like that, that seems crazy to me. I'm with you. Well, listen, Mark, I just want to know, I hate you and I hate (laughs) your book and you ruined my life and I'm doing better. I am doing better, but it's been rough. These last, this is a little cathartic for you, wasn't it? I, I, if you were here, I could punch you, but you're not here. <laughs> no, honest, wait, honest to God, honest to God. It was the book was so ridiculously good and so well reported and so detailed and so thorough and important and like like an important book. And if you're going to get your ass kicked in a sort of unofficial head to head book contest, it might as well at least be by an exceptional landmark book. So well, I have a, long been an, an admirer of your work, you and Lance, and, and I just, you know, you're going to lose, lose to, lose to, lose to the pros, pros, you know? Thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I, not to be all mushy, but I, I am a huge mutual admirer. And I, I think I told you this, like at some point in, in, in messages, like, I don't know as torturous as I find the book process and have found it. I've had two really different experiences with it that have been largely good, but have just been torturous in their own ways. I, I don't know how you keep do it as often as you do. Like, you know, I needed 10 years between the first one and the second one to feel sane. And uh, I want to do another one, but but the process feels so daunting to me that the idea that you're, you know, what are you on nine now or something or about to do 10? Yeah. You know, it's pretty, pretty amazing. It's because A, I don't have a job and B, I have no life. So those well, two things combined. I don't know. You seem to be juggling a lot. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm really flattered that you asked. I want to thank today's guest, Mark Fainaruwada, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkFWESPN and read his work at ESPN.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I don't make any money for doing this. I just depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.